Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I grew up near the woods. They were down the sidewalk and across the street an overgrown thicket of tall brown palms and towering cypress trees dripping with gray moss. For the kids in the neighborhood, the woods were sacred turf, rough and ragged, far away from parents, a private wilderness of lizards, snakes, and turtles. There were crushed beer cans and torn candy wrappers, forts made of old chairs, a mattress dragged from somewhere unknown. This was Florida, so there were citrus trees, orange and grapefruit and kumquat, and it was swampy. A little creek flowed through the woods to the lake nearby. Best of all, there was a 7-Eleven convenience store just on the other side of the woods by the highway. Kids made their way there barefoot, on bikes. Some rode horses. My older brothers, John and Andy, went too. They had all kinds of adventures. We had to cross over this little bridge over a pond. And I was reaching for a turtle. (laughs) Because, again, we we had a turtle pond, right? I was reaching in for a turtle, and I fell. I fell into this creek or pond. It was probably a creek. And he, I remember him reaching and just helping me up. And that was, you know, the roles were switched there for a moment. You know, it was like he was the bigger brother helping me. It, it, was, it was a big adventure to go through this forest and then on the other side to suddenly come out upon a 7-Eleven, you know, which represented candy and wonderful things. I'm David Kushner. As a journalist, I've investigated hundreds of stories, but the one I've pursued the longest began Sunday morning, October 28th, 1973 when my brother John biked into those woods alone and didn't come back. After John went missing on Sunday, Andy and my father joined the search for him in the woods. I felt such a strong feeling of helplessness. You know, there was nothing I could do. And, and, you know, all I wanted to do was gain some kind of control and to feel like I was involved, to feel that I was doing something to help John. The search continued until midnight on Sunday and started again at 7 the next morning. About 150 police and volunteers gathered at the 7-Eleven. In one newspaper photo, an officer, already seemingly exhausted, leans on the trunk of an Oldsmobile parked in front of the store. It was cold out, and some women came by to hand out coffee. Mitch Silverman was one of my dad's colleagues at the university. He helped organize the volunteers. 
Mitch, the guy in charge who coordinated, who was giving instructions to all of us uh, and assigning where in town people would go and explaining that, you know, here's what he looks like and here are the clothes that he had on and the description of it, the color and all of that. And everyone had some idea of, you know, colors and fabrics and that might provide some kind of a clue, some kind of a sign. With every hour that passed, the police grew more concerned about possible foul play. When they'd found John's bike the night before, just off the path, it was propped up against a tree, half out of sight. The only lead came from a clerk at the 7-Eleven. She thought she'd seen a boy matching his description that Sunday at noon. I remember him, she said. He had such pretty hair. One of the police officers on the case was James Walker. I spoke with him decades later and recorded our call. You might hear me typing my notes in the background. If I remember correctly, it happened on a weekend. Yeah, it was a Sunday. And uh, then just disappeared. And uh, there was no indication that he was a runaway. Mm -hmm. uh, that that some, there was some foul play. Absolutely some foul play. It, it seemed clear that there was. this is not a runaway, so... Right, you know, here was this little boy that the bicycle was found in the in the woods, and it, it started getting pretty intense after that. You hadn't dealt, in other words, so my sense is that it was not something you you heard about very often, and that no, it, no, it was off absolutely off the chart as far as magnitude and intensity. Stories of missing kids didn't seem to dominate the news back then. This was long before the days of kids on milk cartons, 24-7 cable news, and Amber Alerts. We were free-range kids. When we had time to play, we could wander off for hours, visiting friends, exploring the neighborhood, often until dark. Parents weren't necessarily being negligent. They just hadn't learned to be afraid. Normally, uh, a missing person would have been assigned to uh, one or two detectives to look and, and uh, mm -hmm. see they could find, but there was so much um, uh, thought that this had gone into foul play that it, it was just everybody was brought in. Everyone was all spread out going through fields, you know, pushing with the stick aside grass and weeds and stuff to try to see anything, and I, I remember being told, you know, we're looking for scraps of clothing or we're looking for anything. But I do remember, I want to say, I remember being terrified that I would find something. So on one hand, on one hand, I desperately wanted to find something. And on the other hand, I was absolutely terrified of finding something. I was too young to be looking, but I remember standing on the sidewalk outside our house. A police officer is looking down at me, and I know he's a policeman because he's in a uniform. His shoes are shiny, his pants are long and dark, and there's a badge pinned to his white shirt. There's a gun on his belt. He's speaking slowly to me and asking me about John. What was he wearing, he says. A brown muscle shirt, I tell him. Shorts. 
and Hush Puppy shoes. What color were his shoes? Red, yellow, and blue, I say. I know this because I want to have a pair of shoes like that, too. I remember standing in the kitchen with its white countertops and flowered wallpaper. My mom and Andy are sitting at the table. It's round and white. They're listening to a staticky broadcast from a small black transistor radio. I'm used to hearing jazz or football games on the radio, but now the man on the air is talking about our family. We've never been on the radio before, but Andy was on TV when he was in a yo-yo contest at McDonald's, so in my mind, being on the radio is a good thing. But I see my mom's crying. Andy puts his arm around her. I want to cheer them up, so I tell them, at least we got our name on the radio, but my mom just keeps crying. I feel confused and terrible. My brother's disappearance became a front-page story in Tampa. Daniel Ruth was sent to cover it. Every day I spent a great deal of time in the house uh, sitting at your parents' uh, uh, kitchen table talking to them about, about Jonathan. Daniel was 24 years old, just starting off at the Tampa Tribune. He came to the house the Sunday John vanished, and then again Monday. Your father <laughs> did most of the talking. I think your mother was more outwardly, visually, uh, emotionally overwrought. There's a photo that ran with one of Daniel's stories. My mom's sitting in our living room, looking exhausted and so sad. She was on autopilot. In the background of that photo is a man on the couch, smoking a pipe. S.P. Ball is the psychologist who'd worked with John. He was there now, supporting our family. She just was a, you know, the picture of strength, but strength while suffering. I don't remember eating. I remember going in the bathroom and fixing myself up, dressing. I'm thinking, this is so weird. I feel so crazy. My mom was 40 at the time. I remember some of my new kitchen chairs needed some cushions. They, I had had some cushions made for the kitchen. And in the middle of everything, I'm saying, oh, I think the cushions are ready. So weird what you do. My parents asked a family friend named Marge Bernstein to help take care of me. I remember her driving me to a store to buy Silly Putty. When I got home, I spread it over a sheet of newspaper, peeling off the print. I couldn't make sense of what was going on in my house. Daniel Ruth picked up on it and wrote about me in one of his articles. David sits in the kitchen with his parents, trying to understand what is happening. Andy is out searching for his brother. That Monday, the volunteers grew into the hundreds searching the woods with Andy and my dad. All these strangers from different walks of life, from, from parts of life that I knew nothing about, you know, would come out and, and give their time and their energy and, and care enough to help, to look. I mean, it was really moving. Scuba divers from Florida Water Rescue plunged into the neighborhood ponds and lakes. Neighbors searched from their own rowboats and canoes. Almost a dozen volunteers and officers rode horses through the woods to cover more ground. 
I remember seeing biker-looking kind of people searching. You know, people I wasn't used to hanging around with the Harley Davidson shirts and the, you know, big guys and big long hair. The bikers were recruited by Stan Rosenberg, a real estate agent we knew from the synagogue. Stan wanted to get more help for the search, so he drove to the bar where the bikers hung out. Outsiders weren't welcome there, so when this little Jewish guy came in, they eyed him skeptically. But after hearing the story, the bartender reached under the bar, took out a baseball bat, and slammed it on the counter to get everyone's attention. A few minutes later, the bikers trailed out of the lot behind Stan, who led them to the woods. After one round of searching, a biker drove over to our house. He was completely covered in mud. And he said to my father, give me rougher ground. Then he headed back out to search again. Monday afternoon, about 24 hours after John went missing, the police called for one more sweep of the woods. But when that came up empty, Sheriff's Major Walter Heinrich called the search party together. We carefully evaluated the problem here this morning and last night, he told everyone. Quite frankly, I think we have exhausted every technique in searching the terrain in the area. The police went around Tampa, talking with kids, parents, anyone who might have seen my brother. There were moments of hope. A 10-year-old recognized my brother from the missing persons photo. He said he'd seen John playing at a nearby creek Sunday afternoon. One person thought she saw him in a football jersey at a house under construction. Another said he was at a Christmas store at a local shopping center. But the leads went nowhere. At 3 p.m. on Monday, a nationwide broadcast about John got sent to all law enforcement agencies. The search in Tampa continued until 10.30 that night. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. You ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? 
The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The next morning was Tuesday, October 30th, the third day without John. More people turned up to help search, including students from the university where my dad taught. One of the jobs that I did is we got students by the hundreds Mm -hmm. and assigned them to neighborhoods to do face-to-face door knocking and looking for leads or clues or anything. There'd recently been an anti-war demonstration in town, and Walker had to police the student protesters. Now, he was walking alongside them. As the search intensified, my dad seemed always in motion, working with volunteers, police, and the media. My dad was not just a father who was missing a son. He was an anthropologist, chair of his department, filtering this experience through his trained eyes and mind. He told Daniel that he realized that when people are given what he called alternative ways of being human and applying their humanity, then they'll use it. He said, the one colossal good is that there has been a tremendous coming together. A group of women from our synagogue tended to the house. They made food, comforted each other, and supported my mom. At one point, when there was nothing else to do, they cleaned our refrigerator. As word spread, our doorbell kept ringing. Family, friends, and strangers who wanted to volunteer. Espy opened the door once to find two women, modestly dressed, holding pans wrapped in foil. Nothing ever touched me like the two women from the farms up north who came and said, We don't know you, but we just want to help. They were delivering soup and sandwiches they'd made for the volunteers. I have never gotten that thought out. I've never been able to say it without tears coming, as they are right now. Tuesday evening, the St. Petersburg Coast Guard did a flyover search. They found nothing. The next day was Wednesday, October 31st, Halloween. Three days since anyone had seen John. Because John was a minor missing under unusual circumstances, and because he hadn't returned in the first 24 hours, the police considered that state lines may have been crossed. So federal agencies got called in. John's profile was sent to the National Crime Information Center. The FBI joined the case. Walker met with agents in a police classroom. Every morning we met, and there was probably 40 or 50 people, and uh, we discussed uh, a, a briefing of, you know, of what was done the day before, uh, what the new leads, what was good, what was bad, what direction we needed to go. The community raised a $5,000 reward. They printed up thousands of posters with my brother's face on them. They passed them out to businesses and government offices as far as Georgia and Alabama. 
But because of the Halloween holiday, police asked volunteers to stop knocking on doors early. There were kids trick-or-treating in the uh, neighborhood. Daniel Ruth interviewed one father in the neighborhood who told him that he was letting his kids out with mixed emotions. Many parents felt too afraid to let their kids go out at all. No one was going to your house, of course. There was a lot of activity going on. Trick-or-treaters who passed our house that night saw a security guard patrolling the front door. Despite everything my family was going through, Andy got me dressed up in my Casper the Ghost costume and took me trick-or-treating. I felt very protective of you, you know, and to get you, and I knew either mom said it or I understood implicitly, it was to get you out of the house and get you out of this mess and have some kind of normalcy for you. And you, you know, being four, I mean, you know, you enjoyed it. By the next day, Thursday, November 1st, the door-to-door search had run its course, but the police investigation continued. Officers visited local schools, asking kids if they'd seen John. One girl told police that a couple weeks earlier, she'd seen two strange men in the woods behind the 7-Eleven, not far from where they'd found John's bike. But the police had no idea who the men might be. Our phone always seemed to be ringing, and my dad had to answer it. The police sat alongside him, recording the line in case anyone called with clues. And the phone would ring, and you know everyone would get really uh, serious and, and somber, not knowing who it was, and him having to take these phone calls. One day, a man called our house and said, If you want to find the Kushner boy, check the first house east of Dale Mabry on the Van Dyke Road but it was a hoax. I don't know how the fuck he had the strength to be able to sit there and take these calls. A lot of the calls were just like that, pranks. And my dad had to endure every single one, just in case. Daniel Ruth asked my father how he and my mom were making it through. My dad told him we've been surviving on chemistry. He was talking about the caffeine they were drinking to fight the fatigue and the tranquilizers they took to try to calm their anxiety. I was struggling too. I remember laying in my bed, screaming, kicking that wall that separated my room from John's over and over and over again, as hard as I could, as if he might hear me. The doctors prescribed tranquilizers for me too. With still no answers by the weekend, everyone struggled just to keep going. As a matter of fact, I had had uh, dental or oral surgery just before this, like on the Friday before he disappeared. And uh, I never got to go back to the dentist to get the stitches out. I took the stitches out of my gums myself. There was no time off. There was no vacation. There was no weekends. And we were working six days a week. This story had a soul. A little boy simply goes from his house through some woods to go to get some candy at the 7-Eleven and never comes back. And that is every parent's essential nightmare. I spent my days and nights weaving past blue jean legs and paisley dresses and shiny police shoes. I scooted around officers by the door, dodged women setting food on the dining room table. 
there was a great deal of activity in the house, as you can imagine. You and I had almost no contact. You were very, very young, and and you you weren't your parents weren't about to expose you to that sort of attention. I had no idea how hard my family was trying to protect me. Let's say that you're driving, and the car that's a huge rain, and you have to focus on the road. You know what I mean? It's it's, it is a tunnel bit. It is a focus. The soothing of a, a, a four-year-old, that focus keeps you grounded. The heavy, heavy, like physical weight of the emotion of what we were all going through. I mean, it, it, I was exhausted. We were all, I was exhausted. My body was exhausted. You know, my mind was just going crazy. I didn't want people around. You know, it, it was like, how am I supposed to behave in front of all these people while this is going on? One day, the doorbell rang, and my mom opened the door to find a stranger in a long, flowing robe. Oh my God, a psychic came to my house. And she said, give me a piece, an article of his clothing. I said, okay, listen, whatever anybody wants to do, sure, I'm open. She didn't believe in psychics, but after a week, we had nothing to lose. The psychic asked for one of John's shirts and shoes, and then she started drifting around the house. She walked into Andy's bedroom and told him she sensed hope there. I wanted to tell her to go fuck herself. I mean, I, I was so angry when she said it. I, it was like, what the fuck? What else are we going to feel? Of course. You know, and I thought she was completely full of shit, and I just wanted her out of the house. But, you know, I also remember at that moment thinking to myself, he's dead. You know, I don't know how. I don't know what happened, but he's dead. And, I, I, and so when she said that, and said hope, I, I, that's when I had no hope. After the psychic left, Andy stayed in his room. He thought back to that Sunday morning before John went missing, when we were peeking behind the curtains in our living room. How he hid from his youth group carpool so my mom would drive him instead. I felt that if I hadn't done that, my mother would not have had to take me, and she may have been there, and John may not have gone onto that trail. Definitely the guilt that I felt you know, certainly was related to this being my younger brother, you know, like I'm supposed to protect him. He wasn't a kid that got in trouble and would take off and not come back when he was supposed to, you know, he was a real kind of follow the rules, sweet kid. So that combined with being the older brother and the protective feeling just, you know, hit me really hard. I think the worst thing of the worst is that you never would find the person that disappeared. I wanted to know what happened to him. By Monday, November 5th, eight days after John disappeared into the woods, my family faced the horrifying prospect that we might never see him again. But my dad decided to go on the TV news and make one more plea for any information. There was no telling who might be watching.
on the next episode of Alligator Candy. My heart just sank. I thought, oh, shit, I gotta go to the house. This episode was produced by James T. Green with production support from Alex John Laughlin. Our executive editor is Sarah Nix. Lacey Roberts is our managing producer. Executive producing by me, David Kushner, along with Greta Cohn and Emmy Rossum. Sound design by James T. Green and Eli Cohn and Nocturnal Sound. Rick Kwan is our mix engineer. Our USG audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Josh Block, Jennifer Sears, and Daniel Welsh. This podcast was inspired by my memoir, Alligator Candy. This is a USG audio podcast in collaboration with Transmitter Media. For more information, go to our website, usgaudio.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.